This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Wicked Words listeners. It's me, Kate Winkler Dawson. I want to tell you about my podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. It's a historical true crime podcast that I co-host with the brilliant Paul Holes. As a journalist, I've spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And as a retired cold case investigator, Paul has worked on some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Together, using our individual expertise, we examine historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Buried Bones is a study of the criminal mind and a reflection of just how far we've come. Be sure and follow Buried Bones on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Wednesday. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Freeway Phantom killings, at least when they concluded. They went on for 29 months, 24 to 29 months, depending on where you call the end of the last victim. We had six to seven victims, all young Black women, all sexually assaulted. What really stood out for me when we were looking at this project was this was an unsolved serial killing crime in the nation's capital. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked Presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Blaine Pardo has been with us before when he talked to me about the Colonial Parkway killer last season. Now he's back along with his daughter, Victoria Hester, to talk about their book, Tantamount, another story about a serial killer who has escaped investigators for decades. We're talking 1971, 1972. We're dealing with a time period where the phrase serial killer didn't exist. You're dealing with a time period of great turmoil in our nation's capital. We had the Vietnam War protests that were going on at the time, civil rights events that were still unfolding. It was only a few years since Martin Luther King's death and the riots that had torn apart the city. It was a great deal of mistrust between the Black community and 
the police department. Two-thirds of the city was black, but 80% of the police department was white. And so there was a lot of distrust coming out of the riots with the police force and how they were performing. And in many respects, this case has been mishandled. Okay, let's set the world a little bit. Is this an area where the victim comes from? This is inner city. It's an urban area. You got to remember in the 1970s, even in an urban area, there was a great sense of community. Parents knew who the kids were. There wasn't a big fear about having your kids go outside and play, etc. This killer was able to strike in these communities where people were out, and this was very visible. The first victim was Carol Denise Spinks, and she was 13 years old. She disappeared on April 25th, 1971, and she wasn't found until April 30th. She went out with $5 to purchase uh, five TV dinners, and she had been sent to the store by her older sister. She went to a 7-Eleven and never made it back. Her killer kidnapped her. Her body was dumped right at the edge of the grounds of St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which was a large mental hospital facility in the Washington, D.C. area, right on I-295. What was really interesting was in her stomach during the autopsy, they found that she had citrus fruit, oranges, I believe, in her stomach that were not fully digested. So her killer had not only kidnapped her, but had held her hostage for at least three days before he killed her. She had been strangled and had been molested. There were fingernail impressions on her neck. She had been repeatedly sodomized. She was very much a shy girl, and most of the people that knew her said she would never get in a car with a stranger. Hmm. But this was done primarily in daylight hours. This wasn't a late-night thing. The families tended to be the primary people that were raising the flag on this. They were very upset about it. And there's, of course, this general feeling that the police really weren't paying that much attention to it. It just wasn't seen as a big deal, and the families were deeply upset about it. She was a 13-year-old girl in the 1970s, and that really is one of the things that kind of resonates with you, too. This person, whoever targeted her and kidnapped her and held her hostage and then attacked her and killed her, did so in such a manner that he was targeting literally young girls, leaving her body in front of a, didn't you say it was a mental health facility? It's on I-295, so it's a highway that comes through the city, but it was borderline with the mental facility at St. Elizabeth's. St. Elizabeth's, I think, does play a key part, and the geographic profile of this really centers on St. Elizabeth's, that the killer did have an attachment there. The other part of this that I think is more disturbing is this is a highway. So it's a very busy highway in the middle of the nation's capital. This person pulled over, got out, dragged a body out of the car, not a small distance either, dragged the person 10 to 20 feet off of the highway, to deposit the body. Now, at any point in time, this person could have been seen. People are driving on a highway at all hours, day and night. Headlights could have hit you. The brazenness of dropping this body off on a grassy hillside next to a mental health facility, it's almost like flipping off the police. What about the next victim? You've got Carol Spanks, who's 13, and she has been found at the end of April, 1971. Darlena Denise Johnson, and she is 16 years old, so she's a little bit older. She disappears on July 8th, 1971. She's found July 19th. So the killer 
had gone back. Her body was found around 25 feet from where the first victim was found. Wow. You also notice that they both have the same middle name. Both have Denise as a middle name, which is kind of becomes a factor with some other things. Her body had been spotted almost the day after she had been killed. Hmm. And people were calling it into the police. The police were driving by but not getting out of the vehicle to even look. That's terrible. So literally her body laid out there on a grassy hillside. And it was finally someone who reached out, who was a neighbor of a police officer and said, you know, I drove by a dead body on I-295 and it's been there for days. And it's interesting too, the first victim, her shoes were not found. Hmm. She's not found with shoes and Darlenia Johnson's not found with shoes. We actually got to see the autopsy photo for Darlenia Johnson. And I mean, she literally, the only way to describe it is she looked mummified. Mm. Because the police didn't get there soon enough, they really missed any opportunities to gather any trace evidence. They were even unable to determine her actual cause of death. Wow. Could they look at stomach contents like they did for Carol? No. It was so badly decayed at that point in time. Now, what's interesting is she was kidnapped in the morning hour. She was on her way to the Oxen Hill Recreation Center about 10.30 in the morning. She was supposed to arrive there, never arrived. Again, we're talking about somebody who's not kidnapped or apprehended at nighttime hours, where you commonly kind of think of for most serial killers, but this is an attack that's done during the day. And we have no idea if he held her hostage for several days either. We just don't know. So were they able to find any connection between Carol and Darlinia? They were able to find on the first victim, they found a rayon fiber. Hmm. And it was a green to yellow rayon fiber that was found on the first victim. Unfortunately, no trace evidence was found on Darlinia Johnson. She had been literally laying outside for so long that there was no trace evidence. But those green rayon fibers will appear in almost all of the other victims, with the exception of one, which is kind of up for debate still. So we have now officially two victims. We have Carol and we have Darlena. So who is next? Okay, next one is Brenda Faye Crockett. Brenda's 10 years old. She goes missing on July 27th, 1971. She was on her way to the grocery store to pick up some typing paper and some dog food. Her mother thought when she sent her out that her brothers and sisters were going with her. When she found out she was on her own, she went out to go get her and never found her. Now, they did find a bag with some of those articles that she had been sent to buy on the ground Hmm. near the store, but they didn't find her. So they actually have a pretty good idea where she was abducted from which was very public. It was right on the street. She's a 10-year-old girl, and she is taken away. We don't know where. But what really sets this one up that's different is she made three phone calls to home. Wow. From the killer's home. Victoria, let's talk about those phone calls. You think that Brenda Faye said to the killer, that looks like my mom's car. So I think the killer got spooked and thought maybe mom spotted her in his vehicle. Hmm. So he had her call and make sure she didn't speak to her mother. She spoke to her mother's boyfriend who tried to keep her on the phone when she suddenly hung up. The second time she calls back, you can hear footsteps in the background, like somebody's probably listening to her every word. And she said that she was in Virginia with a white man. 
Now, we know that the killer was probably standing right over her shoulder. So any information that she would have given would probably be the opposite of what was correct. And again, that conversation ended very abruptly and hung up. What are the intervals, the time intervals between each of these phone calls? Just a few minutes. That's the last time that anyone spoke to her. I wonder if a series of phone calls like that would have given the mother hope that maybe at least she was alive and maybe there was still time to find her. That must have been just pure torture for the mom. It was a cruel thing for this killer to do, but I think he was scared that he was going to get caught. That's one of the things that sucks you in with this is this killer just didn't behave normally. And in Brenda Faye's case, he targeted a 10-year-old. Yeah. So this just, to me, it never really made sense. There are a few things, though, that you could pick up with this. First of all, you know, he had to have a house where he could have gotten her into the house without being seen. Because otherwise, neighbors would have seen her. Maybe a driveway that goes all the way to the back. Yep. And we also know he held the first victim hostage. So he had to have a place where you could contain someone and hold them prisoner. And they wouldn't, if they screamed and hollered, no one would hear. We also know he had wooden floors. Because the gentleman who took the call said, I distinctly heard footsteps on a wooden floor. So you grab every little nugget of evidence you can from these things and try to say, what work can this take us? So we are now have a 13-year-old Carol who has died. We have a 16-year-old Darlena who has died. And now we have 10-year-old Brenda Faye who has died. How far apart are these young women living from each other? Brenda Faye Crockett's in a different section of Washington, D.C. Washington's a big town, but I think it's not as massive as like New York or Chicago in terms of its scope. The first two victims were from the almost the same neighborhood. She's from a different part of Washington, D.C., closer to the White House area. Her father owned a barbershop, I believe, up in that area, if I remember correctly. So there's a little bit of a spread, but you got to bear in mind what we're talking about is two months. Okay. Three miles. She was a little bit further away than the previous victims. And she was also missing her shoes as well. Hmm. So this is the third victim with missing shoes. And these lime green fibers are found on almost all of the victims. The fibers resemble something that would come from a bath mat, especially the color and the texture of the fiber. It stands out. It's like lime green. And each one of these girls so far has had this. Not Darlena. We don't get any trace evidence from her. But all of them have them. And they have them in weird places. The rayon fibers are found inside bras, inside of panties, inside of socks. Hmm. So the indication is they're picked up from an external source when the clothing is all removed. So the killer isn't just having them take off their clothes enough to have his sexual gratification with them. He's having them stripped completely. And in the case of Brenda Crockett, we talked with one of the investigators and she said it was really interesting because she had been playing jump rope barefoot outside during the day and had put her shoes on to go to the store. When they looked at her body, her feet were clean. The investigator who told us this had been working the case for decades. And she said, we've seen that these kids were all stripped completely down. Why would a killer, if you're going to rape a young girl, why would you make her take her socks off? The thought is maybe what this killer is doing is stripping them down and killing them in the bathtub because some of them showed signs that their underwear was put on backwards or inside out. Mm -hmm. So things are being put back on incorrectly and they're clean. So is the killer putting them in the bathtub and then killing them? 
and then redressing them and then dumping the bodies. So this is in the early 1970s. DNA analysis hasn't even started yet. So would a killer really be concerned about washing away all of that physical evidence? I mean, it's strangulation. It's not blood. Don't know. There's something weird there. It also could be that he's putting them in the bathtub simply to have control over them. So Brenda Fay was strangled, I'm assuming? Yes, she was. And she was dumped over on Kenilworth Avenue at Route 50, which isn't far from I-295. And it's a busy intersection. It it is one of the busier intersections in in the area. So she was found at 550 the next morning. So he didn't keep her around after making the phone calls. The belief is he probably killed her almost right after that based on the temperature of the body when they recovered her. And I assume that they've collected evidence off of all of these bodies and stored it. Is that right? Collected, yes. Stored, not until recently. Sometime in the 80s, Washington Metropolitan Police Department had most of the evidence that they had in their possession has been destroyed. They threw it out, quite literally, which is added to the complexities of this case. But there is some rays of hope because the Metropolitan Police didn't just handle this. These cases tended to be centered on Washington, D.C., which kind of put it in the Metropolitan Police Department. But as you're going to see, multiple jurisdictions start kicking in here pretty soon. So he was sort of ramping up, if we're thinking that you go from April with Carol to July with Darlena, and then July again with Brenda Fay. Yeah. The next one is October 1. So I think he may have been a little bit scared again by what he experienced and how close he may have come to being caught. So he may have been more selective of the victim that he targeted. But the next one was Nino Moesha Yates, who's 12 years old. She's a seventh grader, quiet kid. She was out going to Safeway to purchase a bag of sugar. It was 8.45 p.m., Bear in mind, you know, it's still light out. They find the bag again on the street. So whoever it was got her in. She's found by a hitchhiker. Her body was still warm when it was found. And it was found three hours after she disappeared. So, and it was only five hours away. Oh my God. Which really is kind of useful because it means the killer isn't someone who lives in Virginia. It would have taken too long to drive all the way to Virginia, kill your victim, drive all the way back, deposit the body. You're dealing with three hours here. Okay. Whoever it is is someone local to the D.C. area. She's got fingernail marks on her neck. She had been raped. It was terrible. And again, we've got the telltale rayon fibers that make an appearance on her. Okay. So I'm assuming all of the families are just in misery. Do we have D.C. coming in or the state police? Who's coming in? Well, it's interesting. Washington, D.C. has right now 12 different police agencies that operate with jurisdiction in there. You have Capitol Police, you have Secret Service, you've got FBI, Park Police. All these entities exist within the District of Columbia all on its own, which just adds to a lot of jurisdictional problems. At this point, the families are starting to get together. They're appearing in the newspaper. They're appearing on radio shows, etc., pleading for someone to come forward. Someone had to have seen these things happen. They happened on very well-traveled streets. They happened, for the most part, this was one of the later ones that took place because it was 8.45 in the evening, but for the most part, these were done in broad daylight. 
So someone had to have seen what happened. And it also means that these girls didn't scream out. Yeah. Because someone would have heard them. If they're lured, wouldn't they bring the bags into the car? They wouldn't drop them where they were, where sugar's spilling on the street. So, you know, you would come in and you would bring your bag and you would sit down and talk to the person and they would drive off. It just seems so odd. The focus was on young girls at this time. And as you'll see with one of these victims... With the note that was left, I always have wondered if there were boys that were also being attacked and murdered that we don't know about. Now, I've gone through the police records from the time, and we didn't, I didn't find any, but you wonder how many of those things went unreported or right. misreported or assigned to the wrong person. Is there a turning point with the next victim? Her name is Brenda Denise Woodard. Another Brenda. Okay. Anna Denise. Another Brenda and another Denise. She's 18 years old. She is abducted and killed on November 15th, 1971. Out of all the kids, she had, being older, she had some trouble with her parents. She had moved out from her parents. She had become obsessed with a young boy to the point where, at one point, she ended up in the hospital because she had just thrown a tantrum over him. She was living in the same building as her parents, but not with her parents at the time of this. She was finally kind of getting things back in order with her life. She was attending night school, and at 9.45 in the evening, her and a friend went to a local restaurant, Ben's Chili Bowl. They ate. She was supposed to come back and be home by 11.30 and call her mother. They checked. She hadn't come home. So we know for sure something happened. She was found on the Baltimore-Washington Parkway, kind of on a curved street and had been dumped there. What's different about her, she does have the same rayon fibers. But she had died from a stab wound to her chest. Oh. She had six total wounds. She had a broken bone in her neck, the one that breaks when you are strangled. But this is someone who actually fought back. Oh, yeah. It sounds like it was a big fight. This was something where the killer really lost control of the situation. And the reason for that, I think, is going to be pretty evident. What's really interesting as well, she wore a wig. She was found laying kind of with her arms up. She didn't look dead, and her body was still warm when she had been found by a Chevrolet police officer. Now, what's really different about her, her books are missing, so the killer kept her books. Her wig is literally out on an island, a turning island in the street, you know, one of those little grassy areas. And what's really different was she was found with a note in her own handwriting that had been dictated or pre-written by the killer to the authorities. Okay, what does this note say? That's very creepy. It says, uh, this is tantamount to my insensitivity, which is misspelled, to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me, if you can. And it's signed Freeway Phantom, but free is hyphenated with way. Hmm. So it's free hyphen way phantom. So it's written in her handwriting, but that doesn't mean that she was dictated to it. The word tantamount, for example, is not a word that's often used. It's just not in people's vocabulary, etc. The thought that the authorities had is that he had written the note in advance and had her copy it. And he had cut the page out of the book 
So it was uh, one of those books where you spiral bound, where you pull the page out and it'd rip out. Yeah. He had cut the page out of there. So apparently just so that it wouldn't be easy to match up to the book, should the police ever get it. But he had her write that note. And I've always been stunned by that. The concept that someone would have to sit there and write a note, because at this point, you know who the freeway phantom is. Yeah. It's been in the news. That phrase was coined by the media. So you're seeing her writing that if you're 18 years old, and her mother told her, you know, be careful being out at night because of the freeway phantom. Here you are writing this note. You know you're going to die. And she put up a hell of a fight to the point where he had to stab her. Wow. And, and kill her. And he dumped her body on this curved exit ramp. He's brazen enough to either snatch or lure young girls and young women off the street in a predominantly Black area. But he's insecure enough to make one of the victims call her mother to just double-check and make sure that he hadn't been spotted. And he's cleaning them for some reason, we think, because there's no water in the lungs, right? Correct. There's no, in the strangulate, yeah, he's not drowning him. Okay, so this is a very complex person that we're talking about, obviously. Yeah, we're talking about somebody who's literally trying to reach out to the police and taunt them with this note. There's no other way to do it. And I've always wondered with the note, because it says, I have an insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me. That's where I kind of wondered, was he also killing young boys too? Because he's saying I'm insensitive to people in general especially women. Hmm. To me, it's always been in the back of my mind of, has he been killing other people? We just don't have the links to that at this point. And there's a part of him that's very much, hey, I'll tell you, you you catch me, I'll tell you all about it. That's just such an arrogant aspect of his personality that it, it is creepy on many levels. Well, we have more than 100 years full of these wannabe Jack the Rippers who are taunting police with these notes. So who are we looking at next? We're at six of the last ones that had fiber evidence or can be directly tied to the freeway phantom, which is Diane Denise Williams. Oh, wow. It's spelled Denise, D-I-N-N-I-S, but it's... We'll take it. Yeah, I, I mean, know. that's weird. Yeah, 17 years old. Now, there's a huge time gap here. He doesn't go for her until September 5th, 1972. Oh, wow. I think it was the fact that his previous victim resisted and he had to stab her. He lost control. So now he's being very selective. Wouldn't the counter to that be that he could figure out a way to gain more control? Look at the Colonial Parkway, who was taking couples, one person taking couples. I bet this guy could go back to 10-year-olds, you know, and figure out control. We know a lot about serial killers in that they stop killing or take very long gaps many times because they just have life changes. They have kids, they have a family, they can't get away. I buy your theory, but I also think there could be other things happening too. Sure. She was supposed to be riding a bus home. There's a kind of a dispute as to which stop she got off at. The stop that the bus driver swears up and down she got off at is one prior to where she should have gotten off to go home. So there's always been this kind of, it makes no sense why she would get off at that stop and not ride it for the two blocks to get off where she should have gotten off. But she was kidnapped and killed and found literally hours later. She had died from manual strangulation. She had some bruising on her rib, some abrasions on her left elbow. 
fingernail marks on her neck. They estimate that she had been dead for nine to 20 hours prior to the body being discovered. The prior case with Brenda Woodard, her mother got onto the bus stop and actually was within view of where the body was found. Wow. This one, her father worked at Lorton Prison and actually drove past on his way home where she was found. So there's always been this kind of mystique of, did the killer really know these families? And was he deliberately doing this in some way? But no one's ever been able to find a connection to these families. They didn't know each other. Wow. And she was the last, quote unquote, if you go to the Metropolitan Police site, look at the wanted poster, she's the last victim that is officially tagged to the freeway fam. Now, the FBI, we pulled their VICAP reports with a FOIA request. VICAP is a system where they track killers. And we asked them, just send us everything you have on the freeway phantom victims. They actually sent along an additional person. Oh, wow. Diana's 17, you said, right? Yes. So he took this year off, but he stuck with that age group, 17, 18. Yeah. And he managed to control her just fine. See, that's why I really think something happened to him over that year. He had a life event of something. You may be right. We don't know. Why not go back to a 10-year-old who's not going to put up any kind of a fight and who could be manipulated? Yeah. Okay, I won't go down that road just yet. <laughs> Welcome to the rabbit holes. <laughs> Tell me about the extra victim that the FBI came up with. Well, they claim on November 16th, 1972, Tierra Ann Bryant, who was 18 years old. She was a young mother. She was having some stomach problems. Her mother took her to the local hospital. She was supposed to take the bus home, but decided to walk. She literally walked by a police station. So this is how public her kidnapping was. We know she stopped at a Dunkin' Donuts on the way home. She was found on the Anacostia River about 200 yards from her house. So again, we have water kind of coming into play here. Yeah. And she had been strangled. There was no fiber evidence to link her to these cases, but her shoes were found on the embankment upstream. So they know pretty much where she went, was thrown into the river. But again, water seemed to play a role with this. I don't know why the FBI 100% linked her to these cases, hmm. but she remains unsolved at this time on her own. And the authorities, even in Maryland, don't connect her to this, but the FBI did. And as much as there are problems at times with what the FBI does and how they do their investigating, I could sit and nitpick all day. I, to me, there, there's some significance to that. Okay. So there were fibers on Diane also? Yes. A year later? Yeah. Okay. And the police have never been able to figure out what the actual source of those fibers were. They've never been able to pin it down. They looked at car trunks. They looked at car carpeting. They looked at regular commercial carpeting. We've never been able to find what those sources were. Wow. Okay, so Tierra Ann is in November of 1972. If she is the final victim, then nothing after that? It just stops? The freeway phantom disappears. Now, there's another killing spree in the 1980s, the Suitland murders, which has remained unsolved, which wasn't that far geographically away from where all this took place. It was literally just across the border between D.C. and Maryland where the bodies were dumped. But there's no nothing that we've ever had that's been able to connect the Suitland slayings to this as well. And that would also then be a 10-year cooling off period. That's a long time. Now, I'm not saying that that's undoable, but it would make it a, yet another rarity in, in the annals of serial killing. So we literally lose the freeway phantom. 
There is, in the middle of all this, there is a lead that comes forward. There's a gang called the Green Vega Gang. They drive a Green Vega, and they are a group of Black men who are serial rapists, and they happen to be operating in the exact same neighborhoods as the Freeway Phantom. These members are caught, and one of them offers to confess that they were responsible for the Freeway Phantom killings if he can get conjugal visits with his girlfriend and other favors. And literally, a task force is formed. They start going through all of these crimes with this person. They're driving around town saying, okay, show us where this happened, show us where that happened. And it turns out everything he knew was basically in the newspapers. And the way he described where they picked up victims, they weren't consistent enough, so he knew nothing about the fiber evidence. So there was nothing that would connect hmm. them to the the actual physical evidence that was found on all but one of the victims. So this goes on for some time, and he finally recants once he realizes that this isn't going to work out for him quite the way he thought. He recants completely, but two other members of the gang also confessed that, oh yeah, we, we were responsible for it. They were trying to cut their own deals, and their stories didn't match his, nor did they match any of the physical evidence. The Green Vega gang ate up two years of investigative time. The FBI was involved. All the agencies were involved. They did this in-depth investigation, and it was a bust. And unfortunately, in the annals of police history, there are still people in the Metropolitan Police Force that go, well, we already know who did it. It's Green Vega gang. They did it. And it's, no, that was all disproven. So what is the ending of this? Have you kind of come up with your own conclusions on some viable suspects here? So... Robert Elwood Askins would have been old in his 50s during this time period, which makes it a little bit older for most serial killers. They did a geographic profile, James Trainum did, with the police department in 2006, and it showed the epicenter of not only where the victims lived, but where they were found, looked at road patterns, looked at where the bodies were dumped, where they were abducted from, all of that factors in. The epicenter of this is St. Elizabeth's Hospital. So whoever the killer was, chances are pretty good with geographic profiling that this person had a connection to that hospital. Now, it could be that he was a patient, could be that he had a relative that was there, could be he was a doctor there, could have been any number of things. Robert Elwood Askins had a real connection there. He spent 30 years of his life in St. Elizabeth's. Hmm. In his youth, He caught uh, sexually transmitted disease. He obviously had an issue with sex workers and proceeded to try to poison four of them, one of which he killed. He was a chemistry student, so he used poison liquor to do that, was tried and convicted, then released several years later on a technicality for that. He attacked two other women who were sex workers or alleged sex workers. I, You know, there's no way to validate that one way or the other. Right. Stabbing both of them, one lived, one did not. So he's locked away in St. Elizabeth's for 30 years of his life. Wow. He was extremely unstable. When he was arrested the first time, he had to be restrained to a bed. He was so explosively out of control. Askins was released again. It was one of those things where they were like, gee, he hasn't shown any symptoms in a long time. He served his time. Let's put him back on the street. And in doing so, Askins seems to settle in to life just as normal. 
However, in 1978, he kidnapped a woman, took her to his house, tried to bathe her, sexually assaulted her. She got away and had a very difficult time convincing police that this had happened. He kidnapped shortly thereafter another woman, took her to his house, bathed her, sexually assaulted her. He had her write a note. Okay. I'm starting to buy your theory here. Okay. Well, it'll get a little bit better too, because I had to do some digging on this, but had her write a note explaining how she had gotten injured and it was really all her fault. He let her go. She brought police back and they arrested Askins again. Now, Askins went to prison for those two abductions and assaults. And these women were not, by the way, applying any trade in the sex industry at all. They were just women that were going home. Mm -hmm. He ended up going to jail for the rest of his life and died there. Now, what's really interesting, the note is what kind of triggered the authorities to take a really good look at Askins. There were only, in the annals of Washington, D.C. crimes, there were only three times that notes were left with victims, okay? One was our freeway fan with Bryn Woodard. The other was a killing that took place at the State Department, and someone left a racially intoned note on the victim's body trying to throw police off in their investigation. That person was caught, and they could prove he had no links to the freeway fam. The only other one was Robert Askins. Mm -hmm. Now, this would mean he had a cooling off period from the freeway phantom 1972 and 1978. There's a gap there. Plausible? Yeah. Yeah. Here's the other twist. When police got a warrant and tore apart his house, they never found the source of the green rayon fibers. Did not find them. Of course, whatever the source was could have been removed years before. Yeah. What they did find was a court document on one of Askin's appeals. The judge used the word tantamount. Oh, boy. And when they started talking to his co-workers, what they found was this was a word that he used. It was part of his lexicon. Hmm. Now, again, if you start asking people, did she ever use the word abrasion? People may say, well, yeah. You don't know if you're planting that seed when you ask that question to get the response you want. But the fact that he actually had that document in his possession, and it was something personal, it was one of his court appeals, and it was the judge's ruling was part of this. And all the other factors that he had this intimate tie to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, it's where he lived. Yeah. That he worked in these neighborhoods. The way he abducted his last two victims was by impersonating a police officer. He had a fake badge. He drove a late model green car, so he looked like he was driving a police vehicle. Was he black? Yes, he was. Okay. Someone in the neighborhood, someone who people might have recognized off and on? Maybe. Okay. Or someone who could easily pretend to be a police officer. He had been a police informant. Our research showed he had done police informing work in the 1930s. So you wonder, did that give him enough moxie to be able to kind of impersonate a police officer? Was he aware of police techniques? Maybe that's why he bathed the victims. He lived in a house that was in a row of houses. It had access to the backyard and it did have a basement. I wasn't able to ever come up with a plausible enough reason to knock on the door where I could convince the owner to let us go downstairs and look. So I don't know how secured that basement was. 
I'd love to go down there with Luminol just because we know he stabbed a victim down there. But oh, uh, yeah. we never could come up with a good plausible reason to be able to do that. It's hard to knock on someone's door and say, hey, I think there was a serial killer that lived in your house. Can I go into your basement and see if he killed somebody there? I don't know. I would let you in if you came <laughs> over and asked me that. I would want to know. I have a feeling you're not the typical person. <laughs> Does he have any family? Askins, does he have any family that's still around or alive you could talk to? We did reach out to his niece who handled his estate on several occasions, but she did not respond. Okay. Now, what is interesting, yeah, and you got to remember when he went and entered the federal system, they weren't required to give DNA samples and he died in prison and, and was buried. But we do know that the Prince George's County did keep some of the evidence. And then 2008, I believe, they ran some DNA tests. One of the victims had claimed that there was an accusation that she was with her boyfriend. She went to Ben's Chili Bowl, et cetera. Hmm. And he had always claimed that they had never had intercourse that night. And unfortunately, when they checked the panties that they had, his DNA showed up. And he finally, after all these decades, was, can you imagine being confronted all these years later? And he was like, I just didn't want to hurt the family by letting them know. But yeah, I had slept with her and we'd had intercourse. So that ended up being a dead end. But we're talking early 2000s here when this was done, or mid-2000s. I think the technologies like MVAC and some of these new DNA technologies could reapproach some of that remaining physical evidence in Prince George's County and potentially give a link. And if anything, either rule in or rule out Robert Askins. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Mark Pinsky on the murder of a couple and how their killer was manipulated. Brent Sr. finally had enough and said, I'm cutting the credit cards off. Six weeks later, Brent Jr. gets off the bus in Montgomery and runs the two miles to his old house. He sees there's no one there. So he climbs up the trellis onto the second floor, punches out a window, climbs in and waits as if he wasn't troubled enough, he saw that his sister Robin's room was exactly as she had left it, but his bedroom had become a storage closet for his mother's clothes. So he felt displaced and almost erased from the family. So you can imagine how that night was for him. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.